The writer to the Hebrews says, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So, Father in heaven, this Pentecost Sunday, we thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your spirit who caused these words to be written in Chronicles. And we pray that he might apply them to our hearts today. Thank you that your word is alive and active. Be at work among us. Speak to us, we pray. For your glory, for our good. Amen. Some of you will know um, that I'm not a great fan of three-point sermons. Um, They're just a bit too predictable, a bit too samey. And actually today, though, there are three very clear sections in this chapter, so I'm going to have to go against one of my um, golden rules. I'm going to give you three points. The three sections are deliberately there at the beginning of Solomon's reign because they highlight three key themes that will thread right through Solomon's reign. And actually, all three of them, as we'll see, relate to the temple. Um, Have a look. Uh, Down with me, they're on the screen there as well, if you like a heads up as to where we're going. Um, In verse 1 to 6, we see something of worship. Verse 7 to 13, we see the desire for wisdom. And then 14 to 17, there's wealth. Um, The W's of me, I'm afraid. Um, But it's if they are the contents page for the rest of what's to come in Solomon's reign. The passage begins with worship, and then God grants Solomon the desire for wealth, uh, sorry, the desire for wisdom, and then from there we come this um, wealth as he blesses the nation. We're going to jump straight in at 1 to 6, and we look at worship first. And you remember, the hinge of the book has turned in more ways than one. We've gone from one chronicles to to two chronicles, but actually the, the bigger hinge is almost from David through to his son Solomon. And it's fair to say that his reign begins well. Um, 1 verse 1 is something of the introduction to what's coming. And at the beginning we see blessing from God. Do you see? Solomon, son of David, established himself firmly over his kingdom, for the Lord his God was with him and made him exceedingly great. God was with him. There'll be some kingly transitions that you'll see that won't go so smoothly. But the transition from David to Solomon has gone remarkably well. Do you remember last week, David finished on a high. Remember that prayer that we saw last week? The, the sovereignty and majesty of God, just back a page onto 433. The, the temple fund collected, as we heard with Tom and the kids. The people rejoicing and praising. Indeed, even the presence of God among them. And Solomon begins on something of that same high. Indeed, well done to him. Uh, First things first, start as you mean to go on. Solomon begins by assembling the people for worship. Actually, it's quite similar to the way David began his reign as well. There was a togetherness of the people there too. David was crowned. Remember, all Israel united, pleading with him to be their king because they didn't want Saul. But here with Solomon, though, There's unity because the people are gathering together to worship God. So verse 2, then Solomon spoke to all Israel, to the commanders of thousands and the commanders of hundreds, to the judges, to all the leaders in Israel, the heads of the families. He's, He's a sort of combination kingly priest going on. The writer to the Chronicles will be excited by that combination. We'll see that in weeks to come. 
The big question mark at this point, though, is where are they going to worship? Where do they meet? Because the temple hasn't been built yet. The contractors aren't called in. Where do you go? The ark is in Jerusalem, in limbo. We saw that a few weeks ago. It finally got there safely as they moved it in the way they were meant to, by the people who were meant to move it. So the ark is in Jerusalem, but they go to Gibeon. Verse 3. That is the correct location for worship at this point. You get that back in 1 Chronicles 16. It's a temporary place for the tent of meeting until they have the temple. And in fact, just to prove it's legitimate, you get this description, verse 4 and 5. We're sort of being shown this is a legitimate place for true worship. So verse 5, but the bronze altar that Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, had made was in Gibeon in front of the tabernacle of the Lord. So Solomon and the assembly inquired of him there. Solomon went up to the bronze altar before the Lord in the tent of meeting and offered a thousand burnt offerings on it. Now Bezalel, you might recall, was that guy in Exodus 31 and 36 to 39, and back in the wilderness, just after they'd got the Ten Commandments. Um, he was the chief artisan of the temple, oh, sorry, the tabernacle. He was in charge of building the Ark of the Covenant. He was a, a skilled and gifted craftsman appointed by God for this task. And so in case we have any doubt that this is legitimate worship, here he is as almost a stamp of authenticity. They are worshipping again in the way that God had laid out for them. This is faithful worship. Do you remember that theme we've seen again and again and again? This is how they ought to do it. Israel, remember, this is how you are to worship. And friends, it seems to be deliberate that worship is the foundation for this chapter. It's the foundation for the book. It's the foundation for Solomon's reign, at least in the early days. Service ought to spring from a place of worship. We're to be those who sort out our hearts and our priorities and put God in his right place first... And then the rest follows. Do you remember Chronicles? This is is the chronicler emphasizing for the people of God what faithfulness looks like, what right worship, what right living looks like, to learn the lessons of history that they might never be exiled again. People of God who first read this are settled back in the land, back in the promised land trying to think through what the future ought to look like. And so he says to them, he reminds them, remember, worship comes first. We're to approach God as he's ordained, through and only through Jesus. And it's from that place that we then serve, that then we then do life. Relationship with God sorted first, and then activity Of course, our danger and our tendency, though, is busy, 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 and activity, and filling up our days, and and God just gets kind of squeezed in, or he just gets the dregs if he gets them. It can almost be a daily battle with these hearts that wander. And yet Solomon calls the people first to worship. That is the foundation. If we don't, then suddenly we're in the place of the older brother in Luke 15, Do you remember him? 
serving in the field, slaving away, and we, we look the part and we, we look like we're on board, but we forget whom it is that we're serving. We're busy, but we forget that we're his children. We forget he's our father. We think, we almost think we're slaves. And these wrong metaphorical foundations lead to a very flimsy, wobbly building. I should say I'm struck as we, as we consider it too, just by the, something of the worship life of Jesus. Um, another one from the line of David, of course, whom the Lord would do extraordinary things. But indeed, the one who would create a new temple housing the presence of God, his people, the church, that's us. But I'm struck by the fact that, da- that Jesus again and again and again, despite the popularity, despite the people, despite the crowds, or perhaps better, because of his popularity, because of the people, because of the crowds, he, he heads off. He heads off again and again to pray and to focus and to converse with his father. This, this relationship seems to be central and foundational. And it's from there he then serves and speaks. And you see, in an active church like ours, full of people like us, with hearts like this, it is good and it is right to reflect upon the fact that worship comes first. It's the foundation for our service. The relationship with God is what comes first. That's the central thing that drives everything else. And yet the concern can be we get that wrong so easily. Let me say, please, encourage Um, Let me encourage you to prioritize corporate worship on a Sunday. We gather together and then we go. That is the engine of it all. There's nothing wrong with activity for the Lord, but there is lots wrong with activity that is divorced from a relationship with God, divorced from worship of him. I have to say, on the way past, it's one of the reasons as well we think it's, it's related, but not quite the same, but we think First Tuesday is so important. It's a chance for us as a church to gather for our monthly prayer meeting. We, we, we listen, we sing, we worship, we pray. You'd always be really welcome to come along. Um, the clue's in the name. It's on the first Tuesday of each month. It's amazing. Or even, if Tuesday evenings aren't great for you, why not Thursday morning at 7am in the chapel? Um, a group of us meet. Um, there's a bit of worship that goes on, but there's lots of breakfast and praying for the life of the church and for you guys and for what's going on locally, um, seven till eight. And so Solomon begins his, his, his reign with worship. And then at that point, God says to Solomon, okay, verse seven, ask for whatever you want me to give you. And we know the answer, seven to 13, is wisdom. I wonder what would be at the top of our list. God says, here's the proverbial blank check. What would you like? If we had the choice, what's top of your list? What do you long for the most? I wonder whether in times like this and in a culture and a world like this and hearts that have been shaped by that culture we would possibly go for the comfort and security type answer. 
something to make life a bit easier, just to get me through these exams, just to get me through this next month, just to get me through to the summer, just to get me through this season of life, to remove some of the bumps and the hurdles and the hardships. It's striking what Solomon goes for. What Solomon wants is to faithfully be what God has called him to be. See, that? I think that's why he asks for wisdom. It's so he might be the kind of king that he needs to be. I don't think it's wisdom for his sake. Lord, make me wise so that everyone will think I'm awesome. No, it's make me wise so then I can rule as the kind of king you want me to be. Then I can do what you call me to do and do it well. Verse 8, Solomon answered God, you've shown great kindness to David my father and have made me king in this place. Now Lord God, let your promise to my father David be confirmed. For you have made me king over a people who are as numerous as the dust of the earth. Give me wisdom and knowledge that I may lead this people. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? Now now the numerous as the dust of the earth, verse 9. Remember that is the language of God's promise at the beginning to Abraham. And let me read to you from Genesis 13. Um, The Lord said to Abraham after Lot had parted from him, look around from where you are to the north, to the south, to the east, to the west. All the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go walk through the length and breadth of the land for I am giving it to you. So do you see, it's Solomon acknowledging God's promise-keeping nature. He's given him the land, he's, he's given him the people, but Solomon needs God's help to govern them, to be their king. I mean, it may not just be a numbers issue, it may be something of the complex history of God's people that he's got in mind as well. Lord, I can't do this in my own strength. He may well be thinking of the the rebellions in the wilderness, the the grumbling and groaning, the battling with the neighbouring peoples. Lord, this is a hospital pass. You've given me this lot. Um, Please help me to do that. And so Solomon, with the world at his feet, and the temptation to serve himself must have been huge, this magnitude of the job is so overwhelming, whatever it might be, because of the greatness of Israel, because of the unruliness of Israel, Solomon knows he's not up to the task. He knows he can't do it. And so he says, Lord, will you help me? Will you help me by making me wise? Again, there's a couple of really important implications for us there. One is that Solomon's desire is to serve the Lord well. Isn't that interesting? Blank sheet of paper. The Lord says, what do you want? And his answer is to do with how he serves the Lord. His greatest desire above every other desire is to serve God well. And he knows he can't do it on his own. There's a humility there. The most powerful man in Israel at this point. And he knows he can't do it. So we get a glimpse into his heart as well. You can see why he begins his tenure with, with worship. God matters to Solomon. God matters the most to Solomon at the beginning of his reign. But the second implication as well is that God happily and generously pours out what Solomon needs, that he might serve him. 
We, we don't do it on our own. We were never meant to do it on our own. It is not about us. God always equips us. Indeed, at times, at times he will deliberately place us in situations where our earthly resources are not enough, where we can't do it in our own strength. Listen to this from um, uh, the author, church leader, Francis Cham. He says, but God doesn't call us to be comfortable. He calls us to trust him so completely that we are unafraid to put ourselves in situations where we will be in trouble if he doesn't come through. He calls us to put ourselves out of our comfort zones where we know we can't do it on our own, but we need him. Or as the hymn that we so often sing puts it, precious hymn to us, when we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed and the day is half done, when we've reached the end of our earthly resources, our Father's forgiving is only begun. This is an appropriate passage for Pentecost Sunday. Appropriate because the Lord provides what we need to faithfully serve him. At times pushing us out of our comfort zones that we have to look to him. Sometimes even showing us that we can't do it without him. He always equips, he always enables, he always happily provides for us to do the things that he's called us to do. He's not far off, he's always close at hand. And so he provides Solomon with wisdom. I don't know what that means for you um, at this point. In a room like this, there'll be a variety of needs, a variety of situations, a variety of places that we're in where we feel perhaps out of our depth. And like we need to look to the Lord to provide for us. If he's called you to something, he will, he will help you to serve him in it. He will not leave you alone. He will provide for you as he provided wisdom for Solomon. Maybe that's something to discuss or pray about in home groups. Maybe that's a word for us as a, as a church corporately or for us as individuals in our different contexts. This idea of wisdom in the Bible is an interesting one as well. Wisdom for Solomon here is more than just being super clever. For, for Solomon to be wise in Bible terms means he's able to apply God's word to daily life. He's able to, to think and to live in a fruitful way that pleases the Lord in the big things and in the little things, living as God would have him live. Bible wisdom is not so much theoretical, but it's much more practical. For Solomon, that was, um, you will know, particularly seen under um, the guidance of the Holy Spirit as, as he wrote various bits of the Bible that we have in our hands, Bits of Proverbs, possibly Ecclesiastes, texts that help us to understand how, how the world works for the people of God. Explaining how to prosper under God in all kinds of contexts, in all kinds of messy relationships and situations, in a world that is under the sun and broken, and yet in a way that pleases the Lord. 
If you know about Solomon's reign, you'll also know that this wisdom is seen in, in his legal rulings, his ability as a judge, his clarity of thought as he dealt with problems and people and situations. Perhaps his wisdom, too, in being able to lead and to govern and to prioritise, to balance responsibilities, to, to get a temple built. Solomon particularly needed wisdom at this point as the kingdom was getting established um, in the land. I take it as well, we need wisdom. We need wisdom in our context. We live in remarkably complicated and unwise times. Confusing times. Times when people know an awful lot about an awful lot of things. But actually are remarkably unwise in the way that they live. Again, maybe another question for home groups or in the coffee queue is, what is wisdom? Would you call yourself wise? Where does wisdom come from? What does wisdom look like? How can we be wise? How can we be a wise church family? You remember back in January, February, we did that little series thinking about the iGen And we said we live in an incredible time of transition where technology, where phones, where AI, where all kinds of stuff is changing the world at an incredibly fast rate. And so there's lots of questions related to that. What does wise living look like in our culture, in our context? What is wisdom? Do we want to be wise? Maybe for us it's wisdom from the Lord Um, corporately as we engage with our local community, as we engage with planning officers and building projects and individuals, to be as wise as serpent, yet innocent as doves. I know as an elder, we would love your prayers for us as we um, lead in all kinds of ways. We have a meeting on Tuesday. Wisdom when it comes to pastoral things and practical things. James chapter 1 Um, God promises that he will give wisdom to those who ask for it. I think the context there in James 1 is particularly wisdom when it comes to suffering. But let's ask God that we might be a people who are unusually wise, who know him, who love him, who, who are so seeped and established in his word that we know how to live in this world. Of course, Jesus is the the one to whom all biblical wisdom eventually points. Solomon, in all his wisdom, was nothing compared to Jesus. He is the one in whom we find wisdom personified. His wisdom, though, is sometimes seen as, or often seen as, foolishness in the world's eyes, laughable and pathetic and a stumbling block for many, but but actually it's true wisdom in God's eyes. In our unwise world, let's make sure we are following after him, the truly wise king, the only one worth following. So we get worship, we get wisdom. Thirdly, the final bit of the chapter there, wealth. Maybe this is a surprise for us. Let me read them again. Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots, 12,000 horses, which he kept in the chariot cities and also with him in Jerusalem. The king made silver and gold as common in Jerusalem as stones and cedar as plentiful as sycamore fig trees in the foothills. 
Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt and from Kew. The, the royal merchants purchased them from Kew at the current price. They imported a chariot from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. They also exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and of the Arameans. It's interesting, in, in biblical language, or at least language in terms of the Old Covenant, at first glance, I think this looks like a picture of blessing. This looks like favour from the Lord. There's, there's military strength and confidence, which means the people of God are now safe and secure in the land that God promised. Their, their neighbours will, will not do them harm. That's a good thing. There's a prosperity and a plenty there too, and in part that's a picture of blessing. But I wonder if it's a bit more mixed than that. I wonder if there's an ambiguity there. Because the chronicler must know that we and that Solomon would be aware of Deuteronomy 17. Do you remember that thousands of years previously, hundreds of years previously, sorry, Moses gave very clear rules as to what a godly king would look like. As they are to lead the people of God, there are various do's and don'ts. There are yeses and there are no's. Um, so you stay here in 2 Chronicles 1, verse 14 to 17. Um, and I'm going to read to us from Deuteronomy 17, if you're a note scribbler. Um, Deuteronomy 17, verse 16 and 17. Um, you look at Chronicles, I'll read Deuteronomy, and hopefully our radar will be flashing. Moses says to the people, The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself, or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you must not go back that way again. He must not take many wives, or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. And so maybe we're reading 2 Chronicles 1, and we're scratching our heads thinking, if Moses is right, well, Solomon's got chariots and gold i mean he's got one chariot that's worth a fortune and he's even been back to get them where from from egypt specifically banned by deuteronomy there must be some ambiguity at the start of his reign and along with that solomon who is a king associated with peace a king unlike david and his bloody hands solomon was well, verse 17 you see that they imported a chariot from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. They also exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and of the Arameans. What do we call that? He's an arms dealer. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Buying in horses and chariots and then selling them on to the Hittites and the Arameans. So the end of chapter 1 of 2 Chronicles, it's a bit confusing I think that's deliberate. It's a picture of blessings of sorts. There's much at this stage he gets right. He will build the temple. He will keep the people safe. The nation's borders will expand. They will be a blessing to surrounding nations in many ways. There will be other nations who will come and receive from God's people. But I think even at the start, there's a sniff of, of imperfection, of, of disobedience of trouble on the horizon. Verse 14, Solomon accumulated. He's wise, but 
but there's a question mark. Maybe he's not going to be the one from David's line who will be the king that they need. Maybe we get a glimpse of that even now, even at the beginning. Maybe we're left being pointed forward, longing for another king, looking at his credentials, another son of David, a more beautiful king, one who will always be totally wise and obedient, one who will always keep all of God's law and his word. And you see, in the centuries to come, one from the line of David would come, and he will lead the people of God perfectly in worship, And he will always, truly and forever be wise in the ways of the Lord. And indeed, he will not have a heart that runs after wealth or self or other gods or other things. But he will be one who always perfectly obeys. And you know, even though he was infinitely rich, infinitely wealthy, he pours himself out for his people in obedience to death on a cross. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And how might we become rich? Well, in ways far more important than the kind of stuff Solomon has, than money or things things that are susceptible to rust and moths and thieves and damage, but, but rather a wealth that really matters, a spiritual wealth, heavenly forever blessings. Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Our savings account is completely full to overflowing with wealth that really matters. Our king laid down his riches that we might be truly rich. And so as Jesus put it, as he walked the earth, in complete humility, he says, now something greater than Solomon is here. Let me lead us in prayer. Father in heaven, there are truths to glean from the example of Solomon at this point, and we're meant to see something of them. We thank you for that that example of, of worship first, of relationship with you being the foundation for everything else. We thank you for his desire for wisdom, and we too long to be truly wise. Wise in the way that you define it. Because we know you and we love you and we are so saturated by your word that we know how to live in this world. And we see something too of your blessing and yet yet we are left with all of these looking ahead to the Lord Jesus. The one who would make it even possible for us to worship you. the one who was infinitely wiser even than Solomon and the one who redefines wealth, who redefines blessing 
in ways that really matter. We thank you for that truth that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, that we have been blessed in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. We thank you that Jesus, even though he was, in a sense, the wealthiest person ever, the the richest, yet for the sake of his people he became poor, that we might become rich. We thank you for all that we have in him. Help us, please, to recalibrate the way that we think, the things that matter to us, the things that we live for. that we might live lives that bring glory to him. We thank you for the Lord Jesus, the king from the line of David that we were waiting for. In his name we pray. Amen.